That's it for Money Talk this morning. Do stay tuned, though, for back chats with Hugh Chiverton and Rachel Cartland after the news. The weather forecast, hot with sunny periods and a few showers. The maximum temperature is going to be about 32 degrees. And it's going to be mainly fine and very hot, apart from isolated showers in the next couple of days. The temperature, 29 degrees, 78% relative humidity. Just gone 8.30, here's Samantha Butler with the half-hour news. Chinese and Indian troops have been involved in the most serious clash along the disputed border between the two countries in decades. The Indian Army said 20 of its soldiers were killed in the confrontation in the Ladakh region. Beijing also acknowledged suffering casualties but didn't say how many. Here's the BBC's Vincent Ni. China accused India troops of crossing the border twice. Beijing also said today that they provoked and attacked the Chinese personnel. And this is what resulted in a serious physical confrontation. Now, this morning, the editor of the nationalistic Chinese tabloid, uh, the Global Times, also suggested that there were Chinese casualties involved as well. But we haven't heard any official confirmation yet. Now, both sides insisted no shots were fired, but they said an effort to de-escalate the tensions have also been made. North Korea says it will redeploy troops to the shuttered Joint Korean Tourism Zone near the border with South Korea. It means North Korea will nullify a 2018 tension reduction deal with the South. The announcement comes a day after the North blew up a joint liaison office set up to facilitate peace talks. South Korean officials have described it as a senseless and unprecedented act. President Trump has signed an executive order to reform policing in the wake of widespread demonstrations sparked by the killing of an unarmed black man, George Floyd, last month. The measures include financial incentives to change policing practices and a database to trace abuse by officers. But there have been calls for far wider measures. At a Senate Judiciary Committee hearing in Washington, the Democrat Cory Booker said bolder reform was needed immediately. The question is not, will we get there? The question is the time now. How many more people have to die in our streets to get us there? How many more people have to suffer the indignities that even our own colleagues have talked about in the United States Senate? I believe the time should be now for us to make bold change or we will be back here again. These changes will happen, but they should not happen someday. This should be the day. The Trump administration is suing the president's former national security adviser, John Bolton, to block the release of a book about his time in office. The Justice Department said the memoir contained classified information that would compromise national security. Here's the BBC's Peter Bowes. The book, The Room Where It Happened, a White House memoir, is due to go on sale next week. It's been promoted by the publisher, Simon & Schuster, as the book Donald Trump doesn't want you to read. In it, John Bolton argues that the president committed impeachable offences across a wide range of foreign policy. He criticises Mr Trump's decision-making process, which he calls scattergun. The civil lawsuit says Mr Bolton failed to have the text of his book vetted, which meant he was in breach of an agreement he signed when he was employed by the US government. You're listening to the news on RTHK. And welcome to Backchat. I'm Hugh Chiverton. Your co-host today uh, is Rachel Cartland. Rachel, good morning to you. Good morning, Hugh. And we're talking today about racism. How is the Black Lives Matter movement developing in the United States, in Europe and Australia, spurred by the police killing of George Floyd? A recent poll, for example, found that 76% of Americans consider racism and discrimination a big problem, up 26 points from 2015. 
What accounts for that change? What will be the lasting effects, if any, of the movement? How much is it about just the police? And what do you think of the way protests have been handled? Statues of Confederate soldiers and leaders have been a target for a while in the United States, and now there are, there and in other places, figures of former leaders like Jefferson, Charles de Gaulle, Winston Churchill, Cromwell, Gandhi, Leopold II, Columbus and Captain Cook, who have been attacked around the world. Is this erasing or creating history? And what about Hong Kong, where Queen Victoria still sits in Victoria Park, and colonial rulers are memorialised in place and street names everywhere? Is it right that Elgin Street bears the name of the man who ordered the burning of the Summer Palace in Beijing? Let us know your thoughts, your take. You can leave a message on our Facebook page, Backchat on RTHK Radio 3. You can email, email us, backchat at rthk.hk, or you can give us a call, and our number is, of course, 233-88266. Pick up the phone. We'd like to hear from you. 233-88266 is the number. Uh, joining us now, we have uh, Gordon Matthews, a Professor of Anthropology at the Chinese University. Keith Richberg, who's Director of the Journalism and Media Studies Centre at the University of Hong Kong, a former Washington Post journalist. And Daniel Van Hoy is a teacher and businessman in Hong Kong for nearly 20 years, originally from the Seattle area in the uh, US, which is uh, in the news, of course. He's also a member of Republicans Overseas. Uh, some uh, emails on this and one on another issue. Um, this is from uh, yesterday. First of all, this is from D. He says, some government critics need to think before writing. On Backchat today, an email, this was yesterday, attempted to blame collusion between government and big business because Ocean Park is open, but some local basketball courts are not. If the author read more, he would know that to enter Ocean Park, need to register, fill out forms, have temperature checks, wear masks. Local basketball courts, no need to do anything. Obviously, the risk is higher. And in worst case, if anyone was infected in the basketball court, it would be impossible to trace. Feel sad for those who just criticised. Lou says, Dear Backchap, when Chris Patton was sent here as a colonial governor, he was the president of the LegCo and the Executive Council. He was in charge of appointing all or almost all members of LegCo and Exco, and he was the commander-in-chief of the British forces in, in Hong Kong. He wasn't actually commander-in-chief, Lou. Yeah, uh, and I think, I think some of those other statements are not 100% correct. Okay. Uh, all in one, the perfect colonial master amassing absolute power who got to that position not by merit or election. His first qualification was the colour of his skin. He must miss that power, given that his political career has failed in comparison and he was not relevant for a long time in the UK and Europe. It was easy for Patton to rule Hong Kong, since Hong Kong colonial subjects were brainwashed for 155 years to believe that Brits were racially superior. Now, a significant number of British people are sick of racism, worsening class divide and widening wealth gap. It would be culturally backward of Britain to ignore the need to reflect on its past colonial crimes against minorities and other races and its present problems of racial inequality amidst growing anger at symbols of colonialism. Henry says, uh, on the American protests, one clear distinction between the American protests and Hong Kong is how quickly the US authorities moved ahead with discipline and prosecution of police and rollout of reforms. Contrast that with the long drawn-out prosecution of the Magnificent Seven post-Occupy who initially had the full support of the Chief of Police here and the fudged high-level overview of a woolly IPCC study which served little in terms of uh, real end solutions. And finally Peter uh, who says uh, this struggle around statues places and even street names is immensely important. In Britain statues of people like Edward Colston and Cecil Rhodes provide an uncomfortable reminder of just how much of Britain's greatness is, found, is built on a foundation of slavery colonialism, plunder and genocide. 
which brings us to Hong Kong, that is practically the quintessential example of colonialism. In 155 years of colonial rule, there were 28 British governors with not a single one elected by Chinese people. Hong Kong was run essentially as an apartheid colony in which, colony in which white people led a highly privileged existence. However, some of the anti-government protest, protest leaders in Hong Kong, like Joshua Wong and others, have attempted to associate themselves with Black Lives Matter, claiming a common cause against oppression and police brutality, in spite of their close ties to some of the most reactionary and racist elements in US politics. So are the anti-government protests in Hong Kong also directed at racism and imperialism? If they are, wouldn't we expect the protesters to be toppling the statues of Queen Victoria, George VI, Thomas Jackson and tear down street names like Elgin Street? Instead, Hong Kong protesters are nostalgic for colonial rule by former masters and they work closely with imperialist anti-China hawks like Tom Cotton, Marco Rubio and Mike Pompeo, all of whom incidentally are violently opposed to Black Lives Matter. That comes from Peter. Thank you very much indeed for your messages. Well, really big complex subject today. Uh, the US itself is a very complex place with a lot of diversity of, of um, where people live, how they live and so on and so on. So we're lucky to have somebody with us today who actually comes from Seattle, which is indeed a centre of great interest at the moment. So Mr Van Hoy, can you tell us a little bit about what's happening in Seattle currently with these protest zones that a little bit remind us of what happened in Hong Kong in 2014. Yes, they are. And um, Seattle has a history and seems to love this about itself, that it's open to free expressions of all kinds and uh, has become a part of what some of us call the left coast of the U.S., where you have a very liberal California, Oregon, and Washington, and folks have moved up from California, have changed the political landscape in Seattle. And uh, you also have a lot of ancillary issues related to homelessness and drug use, which is rampant. The crime rate in Washington state, where Seattle is, is uh, like number two in the nation. And then the situation occurred in what's called Capitol Hill. A number of reporters had said it's downtown Seattle. It's not downtown Seattle. It's up the hill, Capitol Hill from downtown Seattle. Is, is it the center of government? That's no. What the, oh, okay. No, no, no. No, it's named because it, in the history of Seattle, there were government uh, centered, government was centered up there. But no, it's a, basically a residential and business district. Okay, so that's one useful fact that I didn't know I've learned already. Yes. <laughs> yeah, so um, it's been interesting to watch. I think, you know, two basic sides to that situation in Seattle, that people should be able to do what they want, express as they want, how they want, go and take over a neighborhood and businesses, write graffiti, uh, take over a police station. It's all part of free expression. Others would say, now, wait a minute, this is lawlessness. It's just lawlessness. Let's mm -hmm. call it what it is and say that uh, it's a seed of lawlessness that can grow. Mm. And, and how about the police in Seattle? Do they have a bad reputation? Have there been shootings by police that seemed unjustified? There have been issues. In fact, uh, in the last several years, Seattle, has un Seattle police have undergone a lot of changes, a lot of training and trying to meet the demands of the leadership in Seattle and the people. There's an excellent documentary if you're interested to go in depth, anyone's interested to go in depth in this, it's called Seattle is Dying. It's by Como Television, K-O-M-O-T-V. If you go to YouTube and, and just YouTube and, and put in Seattle is dying, it's an hour-long documentary on the situation in Seattle a year ago. It was made a year ago, uh, where they talk a lot about the, what the police are dealing with and the homeless situation and bringing people in. And, uh, uh, and they talk with the, the local people. 
and you know, how come I've got this homeless encampment in front of my business? My customers can't even get in. Why is this tolerated? And things like that. So uh, it's, it's, I think Como did an excellent job in that, in that documentary that I encourage people to watch. Balanced, huh? Yeah. So, Professor Richberg, maybe you could come in and tell us a bit more to settle this, put this in the context of Black Lives Matter. You know, over the years we've seen so many, of it seems like an unending cycle, doesn't it? Uh, violent cops, uh, an attack, a death sometimes, a protest, and then it all sinks back again, 1992, Rodney King onwards. Is it different this time? It, it does seem to be different this time, and uh, and I can't exactly tell you why, um, but it does seem that this one has staying power. You know, we saw minor, um, I would, don't want to call any kind of a you know, riot minor, but we saw minor kind of riots or protests like this uh, after during the Obama administration when there was a police shooting of a black man in Ferguson, Missouri. Uh, but again, that kind of that dissipated after a few you know, weeks or months. We saw it again when there was another uh, a young black man who was killed, in, a, a teenager really, was killed in Florida, a named Trayvon Martin, who was killed by a civilian, actually, um, you know, using one of these stand-your-ground laws. You know, the civilian claimed he was protecting his neighborhood, and he thought there was an intruder. Again, you, you see these protest demonstrations, and they usually kind of dissipate or go away after a few, you know, weeks or even a month or so. And that, that was, uh, you know, that killing in Ferguson was actually the start of the Black Lives Matter movement. Uh, that was during the Obama administration. Uh, you know, sometimes there's just a spark and something uh, kind of catches fire. And this one seems to have caught fire like something that I would not have anticipated before, where now you've got, you know, even a Republican like Mitt Romney, um, who ran against Obama in, in, you know, in the, in the uh, 2012 election, marching with Black Lives Matter protesters and saying the words Black Lives Matter. I mean, to me, that indicates that there's kind of a sea change. And as you mentioned in the news report, you know, public opinion polling now has taken Black Lives Matter from being a fringe movement to something that everyone has, is, is talking about and seeing. It's kind of sparked something that's going around the world now. You know, you've had demonstrations in Melbourne, Australia, demonstrations across Europe. Uh, it, it kind of strikes me as a moment sort of like the Me Too movement, you know, which uh, you know, women have been arguing about, you know, sexual harassment and, and discrimination in the workplace for years. Uh, but it took kind of this um, this coalescing of things, maybe the Harvey Weinstein case and others, uh, the Fox News cases, uh, and you know, Roger Ailes being ousted, and suddenly it's big, you know Me Too has become a worldwide movement, not just an American movement. So we seem to be in one of those moments now. Um, where it's going to end up, I have no idea. That's that's really kind of an interesting thing. That one people think maybe a catalyst for all of this is the person in the White House. Maybe there's just you know, there's so much kind of anger and, you know, on one side, the left side specifically, that it's managed to coalesce. You've got the Me Too movement. You've got the Black Lives Matter movement going on. It, it, you know, this could all come to a head in the November elections, but we'll have to wait and see. Is it really going to mean anything? I mean, it's rather easy now, isn't it, to say Black Lives Matter, put it on your Facebook or whatever. But is, is there going to be a change, and a, a true change? And what sort of change would people like to see in the policing and other social attitudes? Well, there has already been a change in a way, I mean, which when you think about it, because... You know, even President Trump, who came out, you know, in the beginning as the law and order uh, president, the guy who, who said, come here, we have to dominate the streets and use the uh, police and park police and National Guard to clear away peaceful protesters from across the street from the White House. Even he had to kind of sign some executive orders um, uh, today, um, in, in, today in the United States. 
you know, basically kind of you know rolling back the you know rolling back some police practices like you know using chokeholds, um, you know, and and uh, you know even even though critics have said what President Trump has done is you know way too little, the fact that even he has had to do something indicates that no, we we we, we will see some change. This is not just going to be kind of business as usual in a while, and it's it's long overdue change in my opinion. And again, the, and this is my my opinion. Only is I think police in the U.S. Are, have become way too militarized. Um, this is because of, of a program that started in the late 1990s, where uh, the police received surplus military equipment. Um, and then after the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan, there was a lot of surplus military equipment. And so now you see police in the streets who basically look like soldiers. You know, they're driving around in sort of armored vehicles, and they have all of this kind of uh, you know military equipment that's better suited for a battlefield than for a community. And the problem now is, I think the U.S. is over-policed in the sense that you call 911 for almost anything, and armed policemen show up, and that's how these confrontations happen. You know, if you have a homeless person sleeping on, the, on, a, on a bus stop or in a street, and you call 911, they send armed police. Or, you know, or a drunk man sleeping in a car in a drive-through restaurant. Hmm? Or the drunk man sleeping. In, yeah, drunk man sleeping in a restaurant. The drive-through. I mean, what they should have done is, when they realized he was drunk, they have his license number. They could. They have his car. They just say, "Look, buddy, just call an Uber and go home." I mean, you know, you know it's anything. If someone's committing suicide, they call the police. <laughs> and police, when they show up, are always armed. So it, that's a real problem. I mean, the police are used to solve all kinds of community problems. So I think that's why this notion, when they say defund the police. Uh, it's being misinterpreted. It doesn't mean, you know, dismantle and get rid of police departments. It means take away some of the money that goes to police, especially for the purchase of expensive equipment, and use that money for, you know, NGOs that can deal with mental health issues, uh, homeless, you know, NGOs dealing with homelessness. There are other NGOs, community organizations, other branches of government that should be dealing with some of these problems, not police. Mm. So, Mr. Van Hoy, we've got you, I'm afraid, representing the U.S. establishment here today. Are you going to defend the police? Of course, there are indefensible, indefensible things that police have done, but this is a tiny fraction of the whole. And frankly, I doubt any of us, if we woke up in the middle of the night, we hear somebody trying to break into our house are going to call Black Lives Matter are going to call the Democrat Party or the Republican Party to come save us. It's going to be a policeman. We need to have uh, a, a legal system that works, and it needs to have roots in reality and have some type of moral foundation. Um, I come from a background as a pastor in the U.S., and I was also a broadcast missionary working in Christian broadcasting. I'm unapologetically uh, a believer in Christ and uh, follow that faith as best I can. I grew up in Sunday school singing, Jesus loves me, this I know, for the Bible tells me so. And Jesus loves the little children, all the children of the world, red or yellow, black or white, they are precious in his sight. And so I grew up from that Christian moral foundation, and that's how I see everybody. In my view, it doesn't matter what your skin color is. What matters is the content, uh, content of your character. It sounds like Martin Luther King, if I may say so. Well, I had lots of Martin Luther King quotes in my notes, which I promptly left at home. But uh, it's, uh, it, it's so I think the problem, if we want to drill down into the problem, in my opinion, it's basically a moral problem. There is a problem in morality. We don't have a North Star in the U.S. now. In the past, when when 
Susie grew up 70 years ago, there was a general consensus about what was right or wrong. So when Susie went out to the community, to school, to church, to play, to work, there was a sense in the community of these things are right and these things are wrong. And saying to Susie, be a good girl by her father meant something. Nowadays, it's, 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 it's just an amorphous mess where I can decide one day that I'm one thing and decide another day I'm next, or that something is true today and not true tomorrow. Well, let's bring in now Gordon Matthews, Professor of Anthropology at the Chinese University. Good morning to you, Professor Matthews. Thanks for, for, for joining us once again. Uh, what, what do you make of that? Do you think there is a real change? This is some kind of watershed? Do you think this will be a lasting uh, shift in, uh, and also in the U.S. and in other countries around the world when it comes to attitudes to race? Well, in the U.S. there seems to be a fairly remarkable change because back when uh, uh, the Ferguson protest took place, you had uh, a minority, certainly of non-whites, uh, a minority of whites, uh, a majority of blacks, uh, supporting the protest. Now you have a, you know, some 70% of Americans, as your statistics earlier showed, supporting these protests. And I think Keith, Keith Richburg was entirely right that police are overarmed. They are very often, it seems, shooting before understanding given situations. There is a real problem, and I think change is coming about. One fascinating effects of these protests is that unlike the Hong Kong protests of last year, these protests are leading to political change rather rapidly, which is extraordinary. So yes, I think these do indeed mean something. It may well be that the presence of Donald Trump is making these protests all the stronger, but nonetheless, something real is happening, and this is quite significant. Mm. So that's the U.S., where it's certainly a very complex situation with this long legacy of slavery, basically. This is, as people say, the original sin in the U.S. But racism seems to exist everywhere, including in Hong Kong. What do you see in Hong Kong as the, the race relations problem, if you like? Well, this has existed, uh, obviously, in Hong Kong for a long time, and as some of the earlier email messages you read point out, indeed, whites uh, and British have been the enormous beneficiaries of this. One thing that's happened in Hong Kong, though, over the last several years is quite interesting, that the new racial other in Hong Kong among many Hong Kong young people is no longer Indians or Africans, it's mainland Chinese. Mm. And they can be treated very unreasonably as a result, can't they? Absolutely for example, refusing to serve anybody who speaks Putangua in a restaurant. Now, this is, as you pointed out, a very different matter than in the U.S., where you have guns everywhere. And one major factor of police racism in the U.S. is the fact that police have to make this split-second decision of whether to shoot or not, um, and racism, subconscious racism, instantly comes in. You see a, a black person as opposed to a white person, and the chances of making this, you know, point zero one uh, Professor uh, Matthews, a chance Professor Matthews, yeah, yeah. Professor Matthews, I'm sorry. How do you know that subconscious racism, racism comes in? Are you able to get into the mind of a policeman and see how that decision was made? Uh, yes. Psychological testing has indeed shown not particularly police who uh, shoot guns, but certainly many, many psychological experiments have been done showing split-seconds uh, photographs of blacks and whites and then asking respondents to make judgments as to their character. And it's very clear what goes on. Well, you can't know what is going on in an individual policeman's mind. I'm sorry that you just can't we, know we, that. We've got four white people talking about this currently. Professor Richburg, I don't know if it's fair to mention that you are actually African-American, aren't you, from Detroit? 
I am indeed, and I think I, I would wholeheartedly agree that there are there is uh, unconscious bias. I wouldn't say there's deliberate bias, but there's unconscious bias that goes on uh, all over America, and 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 police are not exempt from that. Let's put it that way. Uh, you know, we've had situations in the states where you know a, a, a African American person looking like me went into a Starbucks and took a seat. I think it was in New York City. Just took a seat to wait for his friend before he ordered, and the the, the person, the barista behind the counter, called the police. You know, and said, yeah. "Oh, there's a, there's a there's a person loitering here." Uh, you know, you you see these instances all the time. You know, in in Central Park recently, there was a woman who was asked to put her dog on a leash by uh, an African American man, and she immediately said, "I'm going to call the police and say an African American man is threatening me." Uh, you know, so yes, there is obviously unconscious bias. And I say, look, you know, when you look at some of these police shootings, which almost always involve African Americans, and you know, not always, but always involving, mostly involving white officers. You have to ask yourself, uh, would they have shot if that was a white person? Would they have pulled the trigger so, so quickly? And you also have to ask yourself, and again, this gets the over-policing and the lack of training, why is it they're always shot multiple times? I mean, you know, I used to watch police shows growing up as a kid, and the policeman always tried to shoot the bad guy in the leg or mm-hmm. just shoot him and wound him. Why now is it always, you know, they're shot five times, they're shot several times? I mean, what, you know, it, it, what, what has become the norm here where, you know, police can pull the trigger multiple times and shoot someone because they can, and all they need to say is they felt threatened. I mean, and, and really, you have to ask yourself, I mean, why is this happening so disproportionately to African Americans? Professor Richburg, would you say that in this latest shooting in, in uh, Atlanta, that what you're, you're, what you're suggesting is the case where this officer, who, two officers actually, wrestling with a, a fairly large black man who uh, had uh, committed some violations and then was uh, resisting arrest and then grabs their taser, is about to shoot them with a taser. Would you say that that's the case in that uh, circumstance? Yeah, I watched that. Vi- yeah, I watched that video over and over again, and I tried to come to a conclusion on that. And look, I'm not trying. I'm not trying to say anybody should ever resist arrest or run from the police. I'm saying in that instance, number one. A taser is not a deadly weapon. <laughs> Number two, uh, the guy running with the taser was obviously drunk and disoriented, and he was holding it back, and he probably fired at the officer. The officers could have just let the guy run away and just sort of called their buddies and said, hey, we got a guy running down the street. He's got, you know, a handcuff on one arm. He's holding a taser. Just, you know, get him down, wrestle him to the ground. You know, or they knew who he was because they had his car. They had his ID number. They had already patted him down. They knew he would had no lethal weapon. I mean, there's no particular reason they could have not gone and found where that guy lived or found him almost running down the street and arrested him later. I mean, to shoot and kill him, I don't think, uh, you know, I just think his his life was not worth that offense. And it's also true that Rayshard Brown was patted down by police before he ran away. So there was no indication that he had any gun on him. So therefore, the shooting was excessive. Mm. Yeah, I mean, you have to ask your question. You have to ask. Sorry to cut in there, but I mean, you do really have to ask: What is a human life worth? And and, and we've seen so many of these instances. And again, in all, in almost all of these cases that we, in the ones that have gotten publicity, the African American man was unarmed or was not carrying a lethal weapon, and there was no particular reason for the officer to shoot. Uh, I personally believe if you're going to look at police reform, maybe they should have some regulation or some kind of uh, training that you don't shoot someone who's running away from you. Mm. Someone running away from you is not threatening you. (laughs) And in that case, as I said, you had the guy's car, you had his license plate number, you had his driver's license number, you'd already patted him down, and he's running away from you. 
I mean, coming back to Hong Kong, uh, I mean, thankfully, people here are not so scared of actually losing their lives. But we have seen in the context of recent protests, uh, Mandarin speakers being beaten up. And I've certainly heard that people whose native language is Mandarin now don't want to speak it when they're out and about because they're worried about the reaction of people around them. Before it's been Nepalese, Indians, Africans who've suffered. I have to say, I mean, we talk about the white apartheid. There are plenty of Chinese who don't want their kids to marry white people. Uh, what do we do about those sort of microaggressions, I wonder? Well, but I think you're, you're missing one point in your questions, that it's, it is seen fairly overwhelmingly that police violence was against protesters more than against uh, mainland Chinese. Now, there certainly were acts of violence of aggressive Hong Kong protesters against mainland Chinese. No one's doubting that. However, the police did behave quite violently towards protesters, not nearly as bad as in the U.S., that's true. No one was directly killed by police. Nonetheless, there was excessive violence, and it does show something somewhat similar to what we see in the U.S., although without the mortal consequences. Okay, well, we're going to break now for the uh, news at uh, 9 o'clock. Continue the debate uh, after that. Uh, if you want to contribute, please drop us a line, backchat.rthk.hk, uh, or you can uh, give us a call on 233 uh, DY in an email says, I didn't know that some protesters would be such bigots against minority groups in Hong Kong, such as black people and migrants from mainland China, that they would go to great lengths to prevent an African-American lady from organising an activity in support of Black Lives Matter. Thanks for calling that out. It is disgusting. Well-trained by Joshua Wong, who often incites others, especially youngsters, to hate mainland Chinese people who are a minority in Hong Kong. The weather hot with sunny periods and a few showers. Temperatures up to 32 degrees, 29 degrees, the latest readings, and the relative humidity is now at 78%. Back with more in three minutes' time. A dozens of Indian and Chinese soldiers came to blows in a clash along another part of the border. You're listening to the news on RTHK. Welcome back. This is Frank Chart on a Wednesday morning with Rachel Cartland and me, Hugh Chiverton, as your host. We're talking about matters related to Black Lives Matter uh, in uh, the United States. We can talk about uh, other countries as well, um, Europe and uh, in particular Hong Kong. Uh, we have with us uh, Daniel Van Hoy, a teacher and businessman in Hong Kong for nearly 20 years, originally from the Seattle area. He's a member of Republicans Overseas. Uh, Keith Richberg, director of the Journalism and Media Studies Centre at the University of Hong Kong, a former Washington Post journalist. And uh, Professor Gordon Matthews from the Chinese University of Hong Kong. Once again, our number is 233-88266. We've got a lot of interesting emails uh, to get to in just a moment. But waiting patiently uh, on the line has been Mike, who wants to contribute. Mike, good morning to you. Good morning. Sorry and to keep I've, you waiting. I've, I have appreciated the discussion. I wanted to point out one thing to, uh, I think it was Mr. Richburg, um, that stated that it was un overwhelming black people were shot. Um, there were nine, last year, there were nine incidents of unarmed black people and 19 incidences of unarmed white people that were killed by police. <laughs> and of those nine black people, uh, uh, four of them were driving their cars at the police, trying to injure them with their cars. Uh, one case was a woman police officer that shot a 250-pound black man unarmed that was attacking her. Uh, there were 
there were two other cases that are that are pending right now that the police officers have been have been charged. But to say it was overwhelming, um, it's pretty it's pretty even. Uh, uh, Police officers are shooting white people and black people. <laughs> I, I'm, I'm not sure response? what that proves. <laughs> well, well, I, 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 it, I think it. I think it proves that we take police officers and we and we train them for six weeks. Mm. I mean, the police academy is six weeks. Mm. Yeah, you need a little bit. If you listen to, uh, let me give a plug out. Uh, uh, Mr. Coleman Hughes um, had a very interesting, wrote a very interesting paper, and it was discussed on exploring minds with um, Michelle, um, uh, 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 can't remember her last name, but uh, if you go to YouTube and just uh, plug this in, it's a very enlightening and interesting uh, article, and um, yeah. It, but it sounds then as if you're actually agreeing with Professor Richberg that American police are under-trained. Six weeks really does seem very little indeed. Oh, you know what? I'm agreeing with almost. I'm agreeing with most of your most of your uh, 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 speakers because it is a very complex uh, issue. One issue that I will take though is Black Lives Matter is no longer. Um, I mean, it is a political. Now it is a it, it is a political organization. To uh, and not only political is that you cannot have dissent. If you say all lives matter and not just Black Lives Matter, and that um, uh, you you will be um, removed, and that's 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 considered hate speech now in America. So. Uh, they are, they've, they've, they've gone a little bit wacko, in my estimation. Okay, Mike, thank you very much indeed for your, for your call. Once again, 233-88266. Okay, a lot, lot of comments. Uh, some from Andrew. Let's uh, hear this from Andrew, uh, who says, uh, this is Andrew F. Uh, Wait until the black shirts find out that Elgin was behind the burning of the Summer Palace uh, in Beijing. They'll be erecting a statue to him before the day is over. These are the people, after all, that celebrated the anniversary of the Japanese invasion of China. Uh, and uh, G says, uh, Black Lives Matter is a racist term, and it seems like the... This is Jeff, I should say. Black Lives Matter is a racist term, and it seems like the media is making this term popular, since it's very clear that minority groups are not the only ones to suffer at the hands of the police. There are other incidents of white people being strangled or killed by the police, but the media didn't report them as serious issues. So there is a serious problem with the police rules and control. All lives matter. Okay, uh, uh, Andrew F. has a question for you, Gordon Matthews. Uh, Andrew F. says, uh, honest question for Gordon, does he think if he was employed by a major U.S. academic institution rather than Chinese university, he'd keep his job, given what he said on Backchat about the fear he'd experience if a black man was walking behind him in an unfamiliar neighbourhood? Professor Matthews? Um, yes, I would. There is academic freedom and I would keep my job. And that's a, a statement that has been made... Uh, a number of times. Just to fill this in, I, I remarked that if I was followed by a, a, a black man in a hoodie, I would be more likely to be scared than I would if I was followed by a white man in a suit. And both blacks and whites, uh, white people have made that observation. This is indicative of racism. This is indeed a racist attitude, and I'm, I'm, I'm sorry that I have this attitude, but uh, I, I have had this instant subconscious feeling 
when I had been walking in the street. Yes, I would have kept my job. There is academic freedom in both Hong Kong and in the U.S., mm-hmm. and I think one can honestly speak about these things. And I think, actually, interestingly, President Obama made a kind of rather similar remark about his own grandmother, didn't he, which uh, perhaps just shows how, how deeply embedded these attitudes are. All right, uh, this is again from Andrew F., who says, for the ex-pastor and his Fox News talking point that it's just a few bad apples in the U.S. police, not a systemic issue, how does he explain that none of the other three police officers working with Officer Chauvin did anything to stop it? In point of fact, they helped and have also been charged. That's from Andrew F., directed to uh, Daniel Van Hoy. I can't explain their behaviour. I mean, you had another uh, black man who was a policeman, I believe, and also an Asian-American. Uh, in that group, and uh, obviously they made a poor choice not to intervene. You know, this brings up, fresh in my mind, this whole situation about lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, a seed of lawlessness. You think of all the situations with blacks and other minorities or even whites in the U.S., any color, uh, these incidences with the police began with a seed of lawlessness on the part of someone, and it's almost never the policeman. It's always someone has committed some crime, the police intervene, there's uh, a fight or resist to arrest, and then this just builds and then into more lawlessness, which then leads to, in this case, rioting in the U.S., more lawlessness. So I don't know, honestly, apart from some revival of uh, moral values that we can all agree on, community values we can agree on to say this is right and this is wrong. This is true and this is false. In other words, absolutes. As a Christian person, I believe in absolutes, which is what I just stated, uh, that come from God. But, but these people aren't, aren't protesting for moral relativism. They're, they're protesting because they see an outrageous breaking of the rules. They see the rules being spurned. Surely they, they want that certainty. They believe that racism is wrong. They, they have a very clear view on this, and they, they're, they're, they're fighting for exactly the kind of certainty that you're talking about. You know, Hugh, one of the things that they're I... They're fighting for laws, not against... Sure, sure. And one of the things that has bothered me in the last few years, both on a personal level and even in my personal relationships in, in the larger society, is a lot of people tend to value their opinion and their feelings more than facts and truth. Okay? And so... I may feel that so-and-so is racist or such-and-such a group is racist. That may not be the case. I have a good friend, a Chinese friend, who grew up in Hong Kong, very successful in Seattle. She's in the IT sector, and we are in a Zoom conference, my Zoom buddies. And she says, oh, we're, we're all racist, aren't we? And I said, and I won't use her name, but I said, you know, that's not true. That's not true. Maybe all of us fail. We, of course, we're not perfect. No one's How perfect. How do you know that? That, that what, Hugh? How do you know we're not all racist? Um, because I've seen instances of, of people I can cite. For example, Ravi Zacharias, who's one of the greatest Christian apologists and evangelists, just passed away recently. He's Indian. He found Christ on a bed of suicide in India at 17 years old and became this wonderful person who met princes and kings and generals all around the world in every country. I, I told my friend, I said, look at the life of Ravi Zacharias. I can't, I'm not going to try to defend my, whether I'm racist or not, but look at this one man who's Indian, who's accepted by everyone around the world, no matter what their position, and tell me that he's racist. 
Mm. Maybe maybe not everyone is racist, but there's certainly racist attitudes are very pervasive, sadly, aren't they? I mean, we we do find them very much in Hong Kong, that um, we talked about these different groups who then get um, uh, discriminated against. Perhaps we should come to the, this topic of should we should we tear down the statues? Another very difficult topic, actually, because as some people are saying that does mean denying our history and doing perhaps things that, in the context of the Cultural Revolution and so on, were regretted afterwards. Professor Richberg, are you glad to see the Confederate statues go? Do you think others should go too? Yeah, I, I think it's long overdue that these statues come down. And uh, and no, not only that, I mean, you were talking about street names in Hong Kong. I think some of these street names and highway names in the U.S. have to have to be changed as well. Uh, for example, you know, I, when I lived in Washington, D.C., working for the Washington Post, and I always hated to go to Virginia, which was just across the bridge. And the reason I hated it was because I had to drive on something called the Jefferson Davis Highway. Now, Jefferson Davis was the capital of the old Confederacy. And every time I would go to Virginia and I'm driving on the Jefferson Davis Highway, I'd have to ask myself, because I studied history in college, and I said, I'd have to remind myself that, wait a minute, Jefferson Davis lost the war. It was, a, it was and, you know, it wasn't the war between the states, as people like to call it. It was an insurrection, and it was put down by Abraham Lincoln and the Union troops. Now, where else in the world would the losing side of an insurrection against the government be allowed to erect statues to, the war, to their war dead and name highways after, you know, after people? Uh, who lost the war and, and started the insurrection. Uh, only in the United States do we allow that. Now, Professor Richburg, can't that be a reminder of what we should not do and what we should not be when mm. we look at that statue? We, we wouldn't no. get Hitler Alley anywhere, okay. I don't well, think. Well, exactly. I mean, just think about this. Imagine if, imagine if you started naming things after you know Nazi generals in, in Berlin as a reminder. Put them in a museum. I mean, that's where it belongs, in a museum. And don't forget, but most of these statues and these street names were not put up at the end of the Civil War. These things were put up as a response to the Civil Rights Movement. So do you think the, the Nazi camps and uh, death camps in Germany should be removed as well? They serve they're, as a reminder? They're museums. They're museums. <laughs> you know, those things are there as reminders, as museums. These monuments are put there because people want to glorify the Old South. They want to say that it was somehow a noble cause which is why if you go to Donald Trump rallies or NASCAR well, rallies... Well, Professor Richburg, you said people want to. You said people want to. You're assuming that everyone wants to. That may not no, be I, the case. Well, I didn't say everyone wants to. You I said people, people want to. People, people who were opposed to the civil rights movement and who did not want blacks to have equal rights started erecting these statues and naming highways after these Civil War generals as a way to basically defy Martin Luther King and the Civil Rights Movement. So it became a kind of an in-your-face, we're going to put up a statue. You know, uh, when, they, when they made uh, Martin Luther King's birthday a national holiday, the southern state of Virginia did not want to do that. So what they said, they said was, oh, we'll call it King and, and, and Jefferson Davis Day together. We'll honor King and the, and the head of the old Confederacy at the same time. I mean, this, these, all, these things all have a history to them. And these statues were basically put up as a way of showing defiance. When you show a Confederate flag these days, what is that for? What are you trying to show? And people will say, oh, it symbolizes states' rights. But if you look at the history of the Civil War, that was not a war about states' rights. It was a war about the states' rights to own black people as slaves. And when the North basically did not want to continue with slavery, that's what started the Civil War. It was not about some obscure issue of states' rights. It was about the continuation of slavery. And so to me, when I see a Confederate flag and when I see these statues and when I see these names on highways, 
I feel like someone's trying to kind of uh, uh, marginalize me as, a, as an African-American. And can I just respond to one thing someone said? We talked about racism and how, you know, if you're walking down the street and you see a black man in a hoodie, you're more likely to be frightened. You know, as an African-American, if I walk down the street and I see a bunch of white frat guys sitting around, I'm more likely to cross to the other side of the street. If I see somebody with a Confederate flag on, their, on the back of their car, I'm likely to get more nervous. Because to me, that's that's where the, my racism, if you want to call it, comes in. I'm more afraid of big white guys with beards and pickup trucks than I am of a black guy in a hoodie. Okay. Uh, a lot of uh, emails uh, coming on on this subject, which is uh, multifaceted, so I'll have to cut some for length. Anyway, uh, Alan says the Confederate statues being assaulted in the U.S. were elect- erected long after the Civil War in southern states who had been resisting the Reconstruction and black rights, some actually sponsored by the Ku Klux Klan. They're deliberate symbols of repression of black people and celebrate soldiers who betrayed their country. But whether they were removed or not does not change history. To equate those with Hong Kong's colonial-era streets and statuary is absurd. The roads and statues commemorate mostly contemporary people, most who had much to do with the creation or development of Hong Kong. Specifically, you mentioned Elgin. He negotiated the first convention of Peking that added Kowloon to Hong Kong. If that isn't notable and important to Hong Kong, I don't know what is. I note that looking that up in Wikipedia, which is now labelled an that it is now labelled an unequal treaty. Uniquely, only treaties that China signed and now wants to repudiate are called this. China loves to rewrite or erase history to make itself uh, look the victim. That's uh, from uh, Alan. Uh, Roy says, would your guests care to comment how they would reduce violence directed at police officers in America even before the recent tragic events? The police in the US faced a high level of violence which directly affects the reaction and training of police officers or are police officers now to be considered expendable? Uh, G says, if the policeman calls an African-American boy, doesn't that tell you? Watch the shooting in Atlanta and listen. Uh, LK says, if you want to understand racism in Hong Kong, look at these two profiles in the South China Morning Post. One is of a white South African couple, the wife of a former beauty pageant contest, the husband a pilot. They came to Hong Kong, applied for citizenship and quickly obtained passports. The second is of an Indian doctor, professor in the Department of Orthopaedics and Traumatology. Uh, after 23 years of service to Hong Kong's education and public health sectors, he applies for citizenship. His application was rejected. Racism, pure and simple. You can also look at the recent protests by delivery couriers against exploitative practices. Many food delivery couriers in Hong Kong are ethnic minorities. Management feel they can get away with these abusing these workers and denying them fair wages because they're a socially marginalised group. No politician in Hong Kong will stand up for them. And uh, Umesh, who I think is of uh, Indian origin, uh, Umesh says, I have felt it all over, even in Hong Kong and in my travels worldwide. It's always there. There's always been that hint of racism against black and brown skin, brackets me, over a lot of minor issues, from getting a table in a restaurant to being accused of queue jumping. A sad fact of life. That's from uh, Umesh. Stephen says, while I really believe the Black Lives movement are really doing some positive changes in the world, I can't help but to think how Racism draws so little attention here in Hong Kong. I was brought up with times with terms like acha for Indian, black devils, guaylo, bunmai for Filipino helpers. Now, two decades have passed. I'm continually surprised by how casually and pervasively these terms are still being used here in Hong Kong. I have already thought the younger generations would be a lot better, but sadly racism has proved to be very hereditary. There's been so little public or private efforts to raise awareness on racism, I don't remember there being any. That comes uh, from... Uh, Uh, Stephen. 
Bowen says, it's perhaps too much of a cliche to say black lives matter. We need to start much deeper than that. For millennia, the significance of race has been exaggerated by some in the West out of self-interest and overestimated, variously due to the low self-esteem and arrogance by those in the East against their own self-interest. Today, we have the necessary infrastructure in many places by which people can be whom they decide they should be. Parents should stop telling their children never to forget that they are Chinese, Indian and so on. The invitation by some uh, to others to look at themselves in the mirror was invited to ensnare and enslave the unwary. We are obviously not necessarily defined, still less bound by the race we have been born into. The sooner the people in some countries realise this, the sooner their countries will free themselves from stagnancy in cultural and political growth. That is uh, from Bowen. John M says, let's debunk the myth of mainlanders being an oppressed minority here. Yes, there have been some ugly cases of discrimination. However, there are more than 1.25 million mainlanders settled here since the handover in a calculated move to dilute the Hong Kong Cantonese influence. Their interests are well represented by the Hong Kong and Macau Affairs Office. Uh, and Anthony says, can you invite some listener guests like Mike to the studio so we can have listener participation? I like Mike a lot and we'd like him to be a, a guest speaker. Well, actually, with Dan is here on exactly the same terms. Anthony, if you'd like to come over, <laughs> drop us a line and then you can join in. Yeah, yeah. I, have a, I have a question we'll for... You a cup for of coffee. I have a question for Professor Richberg. Um, it seems like the, the words and wisdom of Dr. Martin Luther King are being ignored at this moment. I read several of his quotes um, recently and he talks a lot about the fact that hate begets hate violence begets violence and he, he mentions that uh, to his black brothers and sisters that they shouldn't uh, you know uh, treat the white man as uh, they should treat the white man as someone who they want to befriend and, and educate and he talks about his, his famous quote about I've, I've chosen love because hate is too great a burden what has happened it seems like they've the, the the nation, the black community, in in large part, especially with Black Lives Matters, which is a very, I went and read their website. It's very educational. They're into liberation theology and uh, LGBT stuff while they're pushing uh, Black Lives Matter. But I'm curious. I'm curious to know what you think about that. If if the words and wisdom of Martin Luther King are seemingly being ignored at the at the moment. I wouldn't say they're being ignored. I would say that his dream has not been realized. And I say that because, you know, whenever people point out, you know, that Martin Luther King said we should be having a colorblind society and not one where we look at people as white or black or, or Asian or, or Latino, you know, I have to remind them, yes, I mean, you know, those were, those were strong words and a strong dream he had, but he was also assassinated by a white man. <laughs> so, you know, he, he didn't get to live to see his dream. And so, you know, I, yeah, I think you know, the, the goal, the ultimate goal is to get to the point where we're in a colorblind society where we don't need to pay attention to, you know, wherever, whether, you know, whether someone is black or white or Latino or, or, or gay or straight or anything else. But we're not there yet. And again, you know, we can just look at the, uh, you know, don't, don't just look at, uh, at you know, the, not these recent cases of people being killed. I mean, look at the overall statistics. Uh, you know, African-Americans are about what? Uh, 10 or 12 percent of the U.S. population, but there were, you know, a huge proportion of those who are incarcerated. Uh, you know, one of the earlier callers, I think, pointed out the fact that, well, you know, you know, there've only been nine. I, I don't, I don't know if his numbers are correct, but he said there have only been nine unarmed African Americans killed, and there have actually been 19, you know, white people killed by police, and anybody killed by police, you know, and who's unarmed, that's, a, that's not a good thing. 
but think of the proportion. If they're being killed in equal numbers, but black people are actually only 12% of the population, that means they're being disproportionately killed. And we're only focusing on some of these instances, you know, where, you know, it's been some kind of a lawlessness. I think someone mentioned that, where, you know, someone's engaged in criminal activity and the police come. There have also been instances where a black guy was just jogging down the street in, in, in Georgia and was gunned down by a white man in a truck. Uh, there was an instance in Texas where a guy was sitting in his, a black man, African-American man, was sitting in his own apartment eating ice cream. And a white woman, who was a police officer, walked into his apartment because she was actually in the wrong apartment and shot and killed him in his own home. So there have been all kinds of these instances. Professor Risberg, isn't it true that most of the violence and deaths in the black community are black on black? Of course, because that's where people live. <laughs> but that has nothing to do with police officers going into those neighborhoods and shooting people. Look, the main problem in the U.S. is we have too many guns. Mm. We have way too many guns in the U.S. Now, that's that's the root of all the problems. And yes, that's the fundamental American sickness, that. too many guns, no question about it. If, if uh, America did not have so many guns, these problems would really evaporate to a large degree. The reason why we had so little deaths of protesters back a year ago was the fact that there weren't very many guns at all in Hong Kong, whereas in the U.S., everybody might conceivably have a gun, so the natural impulse is to pull your own gun out and shoot uh, among police. Gordon Matthews, um, can I ask you about the, what your take on the situation in Hong Kong? And um, I mean, we've you know we've had this sort of discussion about street names and so on, uh, and statues and reminders of the of the colonial past in in Hong Kong. Um, I think the reality is there is not much of a widespread general sort of antipathy or a sense of urgency that we want to change those street names. Um, why, why, why is that? Is it, is it a cultural cringe? Is it a hangover from that? What is it? How would you account for it well, as an anthropologist? Matter. I know in my classes when I have Indians, Pakistanis, uh, various people from other countries talking about colonialism, they say the British were awful. It was terrible having British colonizers. Whereas in Hong Kong, you have numbers of people saying the British were better than the Chinese, which is fairly remarkable. Now, in fact... The rule of the British, at least in post-World War II, was not nearly as bad as it might have been, and certainly not nearly as bad as the Japanese was doing World War II. On the other hand, I very much agree with one comment made earlier, that there's no need to get rid of, for example, statues of colonial figures. Make them matters of museums rather than, than the honor of street names, rather than the honor of statues. Okay, a, a lot more uh, emails. All right, um, Anthony uh, has a few emails. Anthony says not everyone is racist; just most of them are. Case in point: Hong Kong. Why the whites are not considered ethnic minority, though they are in smaller number than the brown-skinned Southeast Asians living in Hong Kong. Why the whites not speaking Cantonese or writing Chinese can get senior jobs in Hong Kong, while the Southeast Asian Hong Kongers are required to read and write Chinese to get a good job. Uh, Andrew uh, F. Uh, responding to uh, Gordon Matthews says, Professor Matthews didn't say anything about suits or hoodies at the time. This is referring to an earlier Backchat programme. It's on the podcast, which he said I just, I just re-listened to. Uh, he addre he's addressed it subsequently by building a straw man to attack. What he actually said and what he perhaps wishes in retrospect that he'd said are not the same. Uh, S says, does anyone know the criminal history of George Floyd? He did not deserve to die, but the police are also facing huge challenges on a daily basis. That's uh, from uh, S. Uh, Jeff 
H says, how would you feel if you were followed by a black man in a suit or a white man in a hoodie? I think that statement about a black man in a hoodie and a white man in a suit is ridiculous. Uh, and uh, Anthony again says, uh, when a Mandarin-speaking person with Cantonese with a Mandarin accent is walking after a so-demolition so camp member such as Tanya Chan, then it will be something like the CCP is undermining the one country, two systems, or any narrative that China is evil. Uh, um, Paul S. says, a simple question, why can't police be trained to shoot in the leg? And uh, on street names, uh, Jeff H. says, let's rename Gloucester Road to Joshua Wong Wei. <laughs> Irony intended. Uh, uh, Anthony also says, mainlanders are considered diluting the Cantonese culture in Hong Kong, while the whites are considered Hong Kong more diversified and international. Dilution or diversity? It depends on ethnicity. And uh, one more comment from... Uh, Henry, who says, yes, I fully agree with the comment on studio guests. Let's have Anthony come on the programme and review British excess and rule in a bygone era. Should be fascinating. That comes from Henry. I, I, please call up. I, I've said <laughs> this, I did say this quite a lot. Um, 233-88266. And you're welcome, please welcome to, to uh, join the conversation. That's what we hope Backchat uh, is about. Uh, and Hugh, I, I, I like the comments today, but sometimes they get a bit uh, mean. Uh, some I've cut out the mean ones, yeah, actually, okay, and to okay. be honest, there were some that I haven't read well, out. Yeah. Uh, Hugh, I have to say that since the last time I saw you, there's not quite so many hairs on your head. So I want, <laughs> I want to say to those of uh, to the listeners and to everybody, really, Ravi Zachariah said something I've never forgotten. He said, there's never a reason to be unkind. Okay. There's never a reason to be unkind. I hope if we can live that way, uh, a lot I'd of I'd be out of a job, Dan. If, if, uh, <laughs> all right. Uh, Andy says, apologies, I joined the show late, so I'm not sure whether the topic is just BLM, particularly in relation to the US or anywhere else. But if the topic includes Hong Kong, to witness and then be on the receiving end of racism in Hong Kong is not at all pleasant. Wonder if the white supremacists would enjoy it if it were to happen to them. Uh, everyone, including Marks and Spencers in this case, needs to stand up and... Uh, condone it. I think they mean oppose it. Or condemn it, uh, Or condemn it, yeah. I hope. <laughs> Everyone is equal. That comes from... I wonder, uh, I wonder why Marks and Spencer. Yeah, I'm not sure about that. <laughs> uh, and um, John on Facebook says, people who committed serious atrocities such as slavery, mass murder, should not be memorialised in places of honour. Build memorials to their victims and mention the perpetrators on the plaques. Statues and images can be put in museums. Uh, that comes from uh, John Inshartin. Thank you very much indeed for all your comments, many, many comments uh, today. And thank you very much indeed to Daniel Van Hoy, a teacher businessman and originally from the Seattle area and a member of Republicans uh, overseas. To uh, Keith Richberg, thank you very much indeed, director of the Journalism Media Studies Centre at the University of Hong Kong, former Washington Post journalist. And Professor Gordon Matthews, Professor of Anthropology at the Chinese University. Thank you very much indeed for, for joining us. And Rachel, many thanks to you too. The weather hot with sunny periods and a few showers. Temperatures still Today up to about 32 degrees and the outlook is going to be mainly fine and very hot apart from some isolated showers in the next couple of days. 29 degrees now, the relative humidity is at 75%. To prevent the spread of COVID-19, try flexible working hours and staggered meal breaks. Wear a mask on public transport. Avoid crowded lifts. Try not to hold large meetings and reduce face-to-face -face contact with colleagues. Avoid meal gatherings. Stay away from crowds after work. Wash hands frequently and keep the workplace clean. If you feel unwell, stay away from work and see your doctor. 
Visit coronavirus.gov.hk for details. 9.32, the news now with Samantha Butler. The Secretary for Health, Sophia Chan, has defended the government's decision to keep a gathering ban in place when restrictions on weddings are lifted and restaurants are allowed to resume normal operations. She says establishment owners can be relied upon to enforce infection control measures. North Korea says it will redeploy troops to the shuttered joint Korean tourism zone near the border with South Korea. The announcement comes a day after the North blew up a joint liaison office set up to facilitate peace talks. And Brazil has reported a record daily number of new coronavirus cases, nearly 35,000. The country is second only to the United States in the total number of infections. More than 45,000 people in Brazil have died with the disease. I'll have more news at 10 o'clock. If you like good banter, yep, okay. You're in the right place, dooby dooby, with some of our chatter. This is the niche. You may be amazed. What did you think of that? We got the right presenter. With a radio face. Yeah, yeah, whatever. Because Phil Wheelan likes to chat. Exposure to cuteness. It's crazy. Like, where do you go from here? One foot is in one country and the other foot is in the other. First six years in Hong Kong, goes to the States, climbs loads of mountains. Adjusted for you, the morning room. From now till one, it's a whole lot of that. A doobie doobie, because Phil Whelan likes to chat. Morning. Good morning to you and welcome to Wednesday here on The Morning Brew. I'm Phil Whelan. Well, unfortunately, Janice Jensen from Nevis Animal Speak is busy this week. She'll be back next week. However, with all the talk of statues right now, did you know that today in 1885, the Statue of Liberty arrived in New York, obviously on a boat? So it's going to be my pleasure today to talk about a nice statue. And we've got a wonderful guy to help dig deep for this one. So Brian Montgomery is a world-class opera singer based in New York who sung several times at the Met and for fun he likes to take people around his city as their singing tour guide. So who better to join us today on The Brew, live from New York City after 10 o'clock. After 11.30, Philippe Devar from RTL France will be with us for some midweek franglais and a handful of the best French pop tracks you'll hear this side of 1972. And at 12.10, we're going to visit Chris Watts in his Motion Dynamics studio today to work on that all-important 